encourage you to take your Bible out in 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1, as we talk about growing from infancy to adulthood in Christ, as we continue our study in 1 Peter. And uh, I'm learning a ton of stuff as I go through this great book. I've never really preached through this book before. I've done some small group Bible studies in it, but it's just got a lot of wealth of knowledge. And uh, I hope that uh, you're soaking it in as we go through this great book together. So as we think about that, we'll read in just a moment, but just want you to think about how do we grow spiritually to become more like Christ in our personality, in our work, in our relationship, and in our church. And I've identified four things today, but there's more ways that we can grow. But here's some things that I've thought about this week. First of all, hardship through trials and tribulations and persecution and injustices and hard knocks. I think that's one of the ways that all of us, we learn from experience of doing some things that are difficult or sometimes we do things that uh, we make mistakes and we learn from those mistakes. I think about story about these bristlecone pines and uh, these are evergreen trees that uh, grow in the higher elevations, one to two miles above sea level. And as you think about that, um, they are in very unusual habitat. There are very little pre precipitation, extreme temperatures, and yet these things live for thousands of years, these bristlecone pines. It's interesting because they have a very intricate resin can canals and they have very dense cells. Some of the ones that have lived the longest have a bark that's very thin, and you would think that wouldn't work. And they've tried to grow these bristlecone pines in areas that have more rain and more favorability for growth. And guess what? They don't live very long. They've learned to adapt to the environment that they're in. And that's why they've lived thousands of years. And so sometimes hardship, adversity helps us to grow in ways that we never would have imagined. Necessity, just the necessity of life, circumstances of life, not just hardship, but a new job, a new ministry position, something that is thrust on you, on-the-job training, um, you jump into something and say, what have I got myself into? And you have to grow, right? Uh, I remember between my uh, junior and senior year, I applied for uh, a position at UPS. I was already working full-time, and I wanted to work there because you could work part-time and be in the union and make good pay and get benefits, and uh, would help me pay off my school bill. And so 60 people showed up for two jobs. Two of my buddies came with me, and we applied, and I got the job and somebody else did, not my buddies. And so all of a sudden I learned what it was to get up at 3.30 in the morning and be a substitute in the back of the trailers and unloading boxes. And you have a guy standing there with a stopwatch and you've got to throw one on a second, no matter how heavy it is, 75 pounds on down. And you know, if you look at the box, you can't tell what the way that box is. So you're just throwing. And it was like, what have I got myself into? I mean, Virginia, 3.30 in the morning, hot and humid, lost a lot of weight that summer. And so, you know, you jump into these things and you just learn how to grow with the situation. I think of another one is natural, just life itself. Waking up each day, going through the activities of the day. And then intentional, studying education in community with others, worship and Bible study. These are all different ways that we grow. God uses these ways and others to help mold us and shape us into his image. But the key is that we have to be fat Christians. What does that mean? Faithful, 
available and teachable. Fat Christians, faithful, available, and teachable with a heart that will respond to what God is bringing into our lives. Some of our younger people may not understand this next quote, but the first sign of maturity is the discovery that the volume knob also turns to the left. You know, they have digital devices now. You don't have buttons, knobs, but that's the first sign of maturity, someone said. So I hope you can look back over the years and even a year ago and see how God has changed your life in a positive way. COVID has certainly caused me to change in ways that I would have never thought possible. It's developed a new level of patience within me how to do well when we were kind of shut down and everybody was in their homes, how to interact uh, with just your spouse or your family rather than larger groups of people. I learned how to do that, how to be extra, extra flexible in planning things, lowering expectations and respecting deeply others who see this thing of COVID in different ways and asking God for wisdom when you don't know what to do. So let's look at Peter and what Peter says about growing in Christ in the first part of chapter 2 in 1 Peter, but we'll begin in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 25, the second part of that verse, and I hope you have your Bible open and have your notes out as we uh, study this section of Scripture. In 1 Peter 1, 25, it says, And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for this pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation." If indeed you've tasted that the Lord is good. Peter ends chapter 1 and goes into chapter 2 emphasizing the power of God's word in our lives. The Bible is unlike any other book on the planet. You know, as I would think about that, I just remember being in in 8th grade and junior high in Pennsylvania at a public school and in there in a literature class and there were short readings from the Bible and I went to church and was confirmed. But when I came to faith in Christ at age 14, this book became alive in my life. And I hope it's become alive in yours as well. First thing on your outline here is the power of the word in the believer's life. The power of the word in the believer's life. At the end of 1 Peter, verse 25, and this word is the good news that was preached to you. Be reminded that the Word of God is a living document. It's unlike any other book, as I said. You can get a lot of facts, you can learn a lot of geography, you can learn a lot of good things just from the Bible, but if you let it transform your heart and your life, then you really get the purpose of what it's all about. In Hebrews 4.12, it says, For the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul, and of spirit, of joints, and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. The Bible does what no other book can do. It convicts, it challenges, it comforts, it gives us peace, gives us direction to know where God wants us to go with our lives. It's alive and that's always active in our lives, but it's up to us to decide what we're going to do when we read God's word. Are we going to believe it? Are we going to follow it? Are we going to push it aside and reject it? The word of God is the word of Christ to lead us to salvation. In Romans 10, 17, it says, so faith comes from hearing. And what are we hearing? What saves us? Hearing through the word of Christ. John 1, 1 says that in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Jesus is the logos, the word, the word of Christ. 
And then the word of God is given for a variety of purposes. You know, when I was a Boy Scout, and I forgot to bring my Swiss Army knife, I, on my 10th birthday, I got a Swiss Army knife. And we loved that thing as a Boy Scout going out camping. It had scissors. It had a can opener. It had all kinds of things. And that's what the word of God is. It's like that. It's, it's given for a variety of purposes. In 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, all scriptures breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Notice what it says there. The Bible, the reading of the word, is profitable for teaching. It's for reproof, to convict us when we do things wrong and point us back to God. It's to bring correction, to make sure that we understand uh, the right doctrine, the right teachings. It's training in how to live, right living. And the purpose there in verse 17, that we may be mature and equipped for every good work that God has in store for us, to be equal to the tasks that God brings our way and to respond to those responsibilities in a Christ-like manner. The word of God is a source of discipling people to bring them to maturity. At the conclusion of our services, we often read the Great Commission verses from Matthew 28. And it says there in verse 20, as we say it, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. What are we teaching them? We're teaching them the words of Christ, the word of God. That's the source of discipling and helping people become made in the image of Jesus. And then I saw something at the latter part of this week that I hadn't thought about, that the word of God is the source of our physical life. Think about that. In Deuteronomy chapter 32, he said to them, take to heart, all the words by which I am warning you today that you may command them to your children that they may be careful to do all the words of this law. And here's what he says, for it is no empty word for you, but your very life. The word of God is your very life, physically as well as spiritually. In Hebrews 11.3, to amplify that point, he says he is the radiance, speaking of Jesus, of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and Christ upholds the universe by the word of his power. Hey, what keeps us on this planet? We think of gravity. What keeps the molecules working in the way they should so you can sit in that seat? Well, it's all held by his power, by his word of his power. And if he were to change that in an instant, he could do that. But he holds life altogether. Here in verse 25 of 1 Peter 1, specifically, the word here is used... Uh, in the Greek is rima, which means the gospel preached from the scriptures. He's talking about the gospel. Because before that, in verses 23 and 25, he was talking about the fact that we are born again and that we're to love our brothers and sisters sincerely. And we're to love earnestly with a love like the Father since we are to display God's love in our daily experience as we come to verse 2 or verse 1 of chapter 2. So all this is a background, and he says in verse 1 of chapter 2, 1 Peter, So, or therefore, put away all malice, and all deceit, and hypocrisy, and envy, and all slander. First thing there under that point is put off your old nature. Put off the old nature. He uses the word so in the English Standard Version, other versions, therefore. And it means, again, referring back to the fact that we're born again. And that we're like the word of God, that we're going to live forever. He says to put off. 
Here's the idea of repenting, of taking off the old garments and putting on a new garment. Back in the early days of the church, when it was first getting going in Acts chapter 2 and on, onward from there, and we'll be studying this in our Sunday school class uh, in our connect group times as well. But I just want to remind you that in that day when people made a decision for Christ, they went and they got baptized to make a public display of their commitment to Christ. And for them to do that, a lot of times meant loss of family and friends around them, maybe a loss of a job, loss of social status. It was a big deal. And so it's interesting, in the early church, what they did is they wore their old garments to the baptismal service, something that they were very familiar with. And this idea of putting off here means that they discarded their clothes, they would get baptized, and the church, the new church, would provide them a new robe to put on and to wear as a sign of newness of life and what happened in their hearts and lives. So when he says put off, he's talking about putting off the old things, the old nature. First of all, notice that Peter uses the word all three times in this verse for emphasis. And I just remind you when you read the, the, the word all in the Bible, all means all, and that's all that all means. It's everything. And so when he talks about malice, this is a broad term to categorize all wickedness and evil behavior. Malice here means desiring to harm someone else. That's what malice is. And it's a broad term that of these other ones could be placed under. But literally it means desiring to harm someone else. Deceit means to be dishonest, to be treacherous, to present falsehood or manipulate the truth for your personal gain. Literally in the Greek here, Peter uses a very interesting word for deception. It means to bait the hook. And Peter knew all about what that was about, right? As a fisherman, he used a fisherman's term when he talked about deceit. I think of a story of an agency over in England. You might have heard of this in the news. It's called the Alibi Agency. And their whole purpose is for you, who, for someone who wants to go and cheat on their spouse, to provide an alibi for you. They print ticket stubs or business programs or whatever Whatever you tell your spouse you're going to do as you go, they provide uh, phone people, receptionists, so that when you, somebody calls and wants to check up on you, they are from that company. They do everything they can to provide an alibi. It says that we can discuss individual requirements, the alibi agency literature says, and tailor make an alibi to your specifications. Talk about deception, the ultimate in deception. And, may, and Satan is a master at deception. Just another reason we want to take this out of our lives. He talks about here hypocrisy. Hypocrisy, spiritual insincerity, pretense, faking it, pretended holiness and love. A word picture of this is in this culture, they would have the theater. They would have opportunity for people to go and they only had a few actors. And so these actors would have to play different parts, and change mass or change their appearance. That's what the word picture here is of hypocrisy. Envy, one who resents others' prosperity, someone who holds grudges, bitterness, displaying hatred and conflict. And then he closes out that verse with slander, which is backbiting, lying about someone, gossip, tattletaling, and general, general defamation of character. One who is obsessed with envy often slanders those he or she is envious about. 
There's a story of a man who uh, is a missionary, and he went to an unreached people group. And as they do, they do what they call missiology. They do a study of how they could bring the gospel to this group. They have to sit there and observe their behaviors, understand their language, and be able to figure out how to present the gospel in a culturally uh, relevant way so they would receive it. Well, this man, as he was studying this, this people group, he uh, went to the chief elder, and he asked the chief elder a very interesting question. He says, uh, what are the five worst things that people can do in your tribe of people? And I think he expected that murder or rape would be some of the crimes because we think those are the most heinous in the Western Hemisphere. But the chief elder listed five things. And the first thing he said was slander. My friend asked, really? You would put slander ahead of murder? And the elder answered, yes. If you kill a man, you've killed him. He's gone. If you slander him, try to deceitfully destroy his reputation. You've killed him while he yet lives. Slander in their culture was worse than murder. So we think about what we're to put off. Peter doesn't talk about here what we're to put on, but we see on this next slide up here some, some places in Scripture that you could put on the new nature. You can go to the next one. I think it has it on there. Yeah, the verse is there if you want to look those up. There's three places that Paul talks about putting on these things as you put on the new nature. Now, how do we do the opposite of putting off the old sinful habits that we possess as human beings and put on that new nature of Christ? It begins with confession and repentance. That is part of putting off old sins. It's owning it. It's admitting and confessing that what you've done is wrong before a holy God. And then deciding you're going to turn away from that, to discard the garments of sin in your past. It means understanding what triggers those bad habits to come into your life and look for a godly alternative. As, as 1 Corinthians 10 says, we're to look for the way of escape when we face temptation. We need to pray for sensitivity to sin, that God would make us aware of when we're about to do something that's altar of the new nature. We're to react and not act to situations, to think before we act and we pray for help from the Holy Spirit and God's word. That's why memorizing and meditating help renew our mind and give us alternatives to respond in godly ways. And so when a Christian is growing in the word, he or she becomes a peacemaker and not a troublemaker. One who wants to bring about reconciliation and not continual drama and conflict in this life. A Christian who is growing in the word is one who promotes unity among the body of believers. So one of these verses in Colossians chapter 3 and verse 12, I'll read this section. It says, put on then, as Paul said, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. And look at some of these things that are the alternative to what Peter said. Compassionate hearts, put on kindness, put on humility and meekness and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ, think of the word of God here, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, 
singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. There's the antidote, the antithesis, the opposite of what Peter was saying, how we're to put on with the Spirit these things. So why do we, even as mature Christians, at times stumble with these things in our lives? Well, I got some bad news for you. We have a sinful nature that's going to be with us till we breathe our last breath. And that's something we have to wake up every morning and face the reality of. Sins come and go in our lives. It's who we feed the most. Do we feed the flesh or do we feed the new nature when these issues come into our lives? We need to protect ourselves when we're tired and we're worn. We can easily give in to past sins. And we choose to give in to them because getting mad or gossiping or fill in the blank, sometimes it just feels good to our natural body because we're human beings. I think it's, and sometimes it's because we're just familiar. We're familiar with things, you know? Sometimes we let our guard down when we're driving. We're so used to driving and we can enter into road rage and we let our guard down and say, why do I get worked up about being late for something because somebody cut me off? It's easy for us to fall into those patterns. Well, sometimes it's because we don't have an appetite for God's word and his ways because we've not been feeding on spiritually healthy things. So how do we apply this first point to our lives? Here's a question to think about. What things do you need to clean out of your spiritual closet and throw away this week? What do you need to clean out? And throw away this week. I was telling some people before the service yesterday, I even sent pictures to my kids to prove it. We emptied our garage out after 12 years. We've been there 12 years. We took everything out of the garage. We cleaned the walls. We cleaned the floor. We did everything. And, and now we have to go through the process of putting it back in one side of sorting out all that stuff. And some of those boxes arrived. Terry Canwright put one of those in there the day we moved in. And it was still sitting there, for example. And so, you know, what is it that you've got to clean out? We've got to clean out our stuff physically. What are we going to clean out of our spiritual closets and throw away this week? Well, P Peter shares with us, secondly, the purpose of God's word in our daily lives. The purpose of the word of God is for salvation and for spiritual growth. The purpose of the word of God is for salvation and spiritual growth. And I know... All of us probably in this room know that, but we're going to explain that a little bit more in detail just to remind us. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 2 and 3, it says, Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. First of all, do you have a longing for the Word of God? Do you have a longing for for the word of God. If you're a believer in Jesus, one of the important proofs that you have come to faith in Christ is you have an insatiable desire to get into his word and to see what it will show us and reveal about our lives and to match our lives up to the word. You want to spend time in relationship with your Lord and your Savior. The picture Peter is painting here is of a newborn infant that just comes out of the womb. And shortly thereafter, the first thing it wants is milk, milk from the mother. And that's the picture here, longing for the pure spiritual milk. 
You and I as believers in Christ, we should long for the word. Long here means to have a strong desire, a craving, an intense passion that is reoccurring in our lives. Once babies learn how to get that nourishment, it becomes a reoccurring desire. And when they get what they desire, it's satisfied. And then they begin to know where to get that milk and, where, and how to get it. And they move forward in wanting that because that is how an infant grows. So should it be for us as Christians. The picture here of strong desires is likened that the strong desire for a husband and a wife relationship. The strong desire, a personal hunger for food. We have a desire. We can uh, last a few days without food. We, we can last longer without food than water, but there's something in us that has a personal longing for food, for nourishment. Another picture is a Christian parent wanting desperately for their child to come to the Lord or return to the Lord. A Christian having a burden and a strong desire for lost people to find Jesus. This is the kind of desire Peter is talking about concerning the word of God. We must be committed to receiving regular nourishment of the word of God initiated by ourselves. I love the picture that David paints in Psalm 42, 1. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. And that's what we do as we enter into reading the word and we pray is building that relationship with him. It's our, our conduit to experience him in new and fresh ways. We're to long for, to strongly desire the pure milk of the word. That word pure means unadulterated, uncontaminated. Rabbis refer to scriptures sometimes as God's milk. In Psalm 19, it says, the precepts of the Lord are right. Rejoicing the heart, the commandment of the Lord is pure. Enlightening the eyes, the fear of the Lord is clean. Enduring forever, the rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. We're to be desperate for God in our search for him through scripture. In Matthew chapter 5, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. And so as we get into God's word on a daily or several times a week basis, it satisfies our desire and our commitment to him and understanding how we're to live our lives. Jesus describes the word as daily bread, as if to say we need it daily for our spiritual nourishment as we do food to grow and make our bodies healthy. When Jesus was tempted by Satan, he fasted for 40 days and 40 nights, and he was tempted three times by Satan, as recorded in Scripture. In Matthew 4, 4, one of his answers was this, but he answered to Satan, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And in the Lord's Prayer, he said in Matthew 6, 11, give us this day our daily bread, speaking of physical but also spiritual nourishment that we need for our lives. The word of God is sweet to our spiritual taste. I like what Jeremiah said. He says, your words were found and I ate them and your words became to me a joy and the delight of my heart. For I am called by your name, O Lord, God of hosts. We are called by his name and as we eat his words, as we read them, it becomes a sweet relationship with him. It's telling that Peter uses the word pure here in contrast to verse one, where he talks about deceit. So we're to long for the word and then we're to grow, second of all, grow in the word of God. 
Look at the second part of verse 2. That by it you may grow up into salvation. That by it, the word, you may grow up into salvation. Key words in this phrase. That by the pure milk of the word of God, you will grow spiritually. And many verses in the New Testament describe what kind of growth. And here are just a few. The same writer, the same author, Peter, says this in 2 Peter 3. But grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Or so be it, is what he is saying. And so we think about that. And we think about a term. I hope as I think about growing, I, I learn things. I learned this word last week. It's called antinomy. It's two things in philosophy that are in conflict with one another, but you come to it correctly through reasoning. And I'll give you an example. How do we balance grace and truth? How do we balance God's justice and mercy? How do we balance free will and election? Those are two, three, three examples there of how uh, God explains these things, but yet we can't completely understand them in our finite minds. In Philippians 2, he gives us another one of these antinomies where it's human responsibility and God's sovereignty talking about the growth that occurs in our lives. In Philippians 2, it says, Therefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, so now not only is in my presence, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. He's not saying we have to work in order to be saved, but after we're saved, Ephesians 2 tends that we're created to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. We have a responsibility for spiritual growth in our life to enable God to allow his spirit to change us and transform us into the image of Christ. But verse 13, this is God's responsibility for it is God who works in you both the will and the work for his good pleasure. So I don't know where human responsibility and God's sovereignty begin and end but the two of those working together are growing us more and more into the image of Christ. That means that as we read the word, the word becomes a part of us and we make adjustments and changes to be like he wants us to be. I love Rich Mullins, a songwriter from yesteryear, and he wrote a song called The Creed. And there's a line in there that I think about a lot. He says, I am not making the word of God. The word of God is making me. It's transforming me. I'm not creating this construct or this reality. It is already there. Am I going to receive it and let it transform my life? We're to be changed as we expose ourselves to the word. In Ephesians 5.26, that Christ might sanctify her, the church, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. I love that verse because sometimes, maybe this doesn't ever happen to you, but sometimes I go through periods in my devotional life where it's kind of dry to read the word of God. Sometimes I feel like the prayers are bouncing off the ceiling and not really getting to God. But I know that as I go through that process, that God is washing my soul. He's cleansing me. He's, he's helping me to see things from his perspective, even if I may not feel like I'm gaining much from that time with him. The water cleanses us and purifies us. The last point we'll make today is that we are to experience the author of the word of God. In 1 Peter 2, 3, he says, If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good, experience the author of the word of God. 
The Bible is, in a sense, a means to an end. Yes, it's powerful. Yes, the Holy Spirit illuminates or teaches us from it. But it's to point us to God and our worship of him. Notice it says there in 1 Peter 2, 3, if. If is a conditional phrase that explains the facts and conditions necessary for the statement to be true. You have to meet the terms of the condition to experience the result. So he's saying if you are saved and you know personally God's tender, loving, working in your life, you will know experientially that he is good. And so if I say that phrase, God is good all the time, all the time. Right. Let's do it again. God is good and all the time. That's right. And if when we experience the Lord, we experience his goodness in our lives. Because he is good, we desire to know him more through the knowledge and our life experiences. You see, it's not enough to know the word of God. We'll talk about the Pharisees in a moment, but a great example is from the Islam, Islam faith and uh, the Muslims because they memorized the Quran. The Quran is a little shorter than our New Testament, but think about it. There are many Muslims who go through and can recite from beginning to end in one sitting the Quran. And if they do that, they get a little hyphen on their name and they get added this word, H-A-F-I-Z, Haviz. So then when they sign their name and they put that on there, you know that they have recited it to uh, one of their clerical leaders, the imams, the entire Quran from start to finish. Think of the commitment that takes. But you know what? Quran means recitation or the very words of Allah. They're worshiping the words, not Allah, by doing that. I think of the Sikhs, and they worship the Adai Granth. That is their sacred scripture. And they had a number of gurus. They call them gurus or teachers. And the last one was the Adai Granth, the sacred writings that they worship, because that is the incorruptible. Nothing can happen because it's a book. And you should see the ritual that they go through on a daily basis to cleanse their temple and have a procession to bring the Adai Granth in and people come and worship the book. Well, the Pharisees, they knew the scriptures, but they did not know God and his personal power in their lives. And Jesus called them out on that in John chapter 5. They knew the scriptures. But notice what Jesus says in John 5, and you do not have this word, his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you, because you think in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. The word is to bring us to the relationship that we have with Jesus Christ. It's not some magical thing that we can recite or use as incantation, but it's a means to an end to point us to him. And so we experience him by tasting him by receiving him as our personal savior, by allowing him to be Lord of our lives. Then we see how good he truly is as we experience his loving work in our lives. So never let your study and the gaining of knowledge become more important than the application and the experience of God himself. Moses experienced God when he was at the burning bush. God said, take off your sandals, this is holy ground as he watched this bush burning that wasn't consumed. God revealed himself and Moses experienced the Yahweh, I am that I am. Think about Isaiah. He experienced 
God in a vision, in a dream, in Isaiah 6. The Lord was high and lifted up. And he goes on to describe it in the first seven verses of Isaiah chapter 6. Paul said one aspect of growing in Christ was by experiencing the power of God in our lives firsthand. Ephesians 1, 17 and 18, he drives this home. He says that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation for what purpose? In the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. Not just head knowledge, but you might experience what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. You and I, we experience God working in our lives if we are open to that as we study his word. So as we taste the Lord, as we're believers in Christ, are we moving on to the meat of the word or are we just satisfied with knowing God just a little bit? You know, it breaks our heart when we see on TV children from other parts of the world that are malnourished. And you see the long-term effects on their bodies when they don't get proper food and water and the things that they need. It breaks our hearts when we see someone who is mentally handicapped and are kind of stuck where they are in life because of that handicap and they can't go on to maturity mentally. And we as a Christian, we do not want to be that to be said of us. In Hebrews 6.1, he says, Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity. This is a lifelong process in our lives that we'll be ever learning until we breathe our last breath. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 3, But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, carnal Christians, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, the milk of the word, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you are not yet ready, for you are still of the flesh. Let that not be said of us as we continue to grow in Christ. So I leave you with a couple questions to think about in the application. Are you moving from the milk of the word of God to the meat of the word of God? Are you moving from the milk of the word of God to the meat of the word of God? And you do that by reading, by applying, by asking God on a daily basis, and we'll give you some practical things next week. But as you read it and you say, God, what is it that I need to take away from what I'm reading today to apply to my life? And then to obey and do what it says. I like what Scott Rideout says, you know, help us to know the truth and give us the courage to go out and obey that truth. It's one thing to know what we're supposed to do, but do we go out and actually carry it out in our lives? So I hope that you're moving from the milk to the meat of the word. Our key thought is this, are you enjoying a healthy diet spiritually in order that you can continue to mature in Christ? I hope so. I hope that you are growing each and every day. You know, Philippians 1.6 says, being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Jesus Christ. Isn't that a great promise? If maybe we take a step or two back in our spiritual life or, you know, we're just not into the word for a week and we're not growing, know that God is still working to transform us in our lives. Twyla Paris, who is a, who is a, a, a contemporary Christian singer said this, a big part of Christian maturity is learning to let God keep you steady 
and to be ruled less and less by your emotions and your circumstances. I like that. That's a very practical thing as we let God have more control in our lives. And Gerald Vaughn, a British Roman Catholic theologian and philosopher, said it this way, to grow in wisdom and love is not to lose all fear of God. It is to change our fear of God. It is to pass from the servile fear of the slave, the fear of punishment, to the loving reverence of the son, fearing to offend his father, and in the end, to purely selfless fear of the lover, the fear of hurting what you love. That is the transformation that we make as we mature in Christ, that we want to please the Father, not be so fearful of his judgment and consequences in our lives. So as we close today, I encourage you as we pray to think about these things. Are you seeing glimpses of maturing in your life? And who can you share that with this week? Let's bow for prayer. Maybe God has challenged you through this message to think about where you are spiritually. Are you growing? Are you moving forward on a daily basis? And maybe you haven't been. Maybe it's time that you get back into the Word a couple days of the week. As we'll talk about next week, there's so many easy ways to do that with simply as an app on your phone. So many great resources. But do we take the time to feed ourselves spiritually. And I encourage you to make a commitment this week. Are you seeing glimpses of maturity in your life? And I encourage you to share how you are growing in Christ with someone this week. Father, we thank you for Peter's encouraging words and admonition, commands, because we have a responsibility You've given us all the resources with your Holy Spirit, with your word, with church, with Bible studies, and on and on the list goes, especially here in our country. Lord, there's so many people around the world that would give anything for one-tenth of the resources that we have to know more about Christ. And to whom much is given, much will be required. And so I pray that you help us to see and make sure that we are growing into maturity to be more like you on a daily basis. And help us this week to have opportunity to share how God is changing us, transforming us, putting on some new things into our hearts and lives. We pray and ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.